All right, we are back and need to discuss, I think, this article that was in The Atlantic titled The New Meth by Sam Quinones. Well, let's just read from the top of the article. Different chemically than it was a decade ago, the drug, in this case meth, is creating a wave of severe mental illness and is worsening the already severe homelessness problem in the United States. Here's the story of how it spread and what it's doing to people. Now, I'm guessing, dear listener, that you, like us, have been puzzled over the explosion of homelessness in the United States that has taken place in the last uh, few years. There's a lot of reasons that are pointed to, but none of them have seemed to hold water to me. There's something else going on. Something else is what this this article talks about. Is it correct? Um, I'm thinking it might be. I can, I can, as a prelude to this discussion, I can note that I ran this article past uh, a person I know is probably my go-to guy on substance abuse issues, who's uh, very well connected with, you know, the treatment programs that exist for various substance uh, issues. He read this article and said it made sense to him, too. So let's talk about it. In the fall of 2006, law enforcement on the southwest border of the United States, seized some crystal methamphetamine. The article starts. In due course, a five-gram sample of that seizure landed on the desk of a 31-year-old chemist named Joe Rosenko at the DEA lab outside of Washington. Organic chemistry, notes the piece, can be endlessly manipulated with compounds that, like Lego bricks, can be used to build almost anything. The field seems to breed folks whose every walking minute is spent puzzling over chemical reactions. Bozenko, a garrulous man with a wide smile, worked in the DEA lab during the day and taught chemistry at the local university in the evenings. Chemist by day, chemist by night, his Twitter bio once read. Bozenko had joined the DEA seven years earlier just as the global underworld was veering toward synthetic drugs and away from their plant-based cousins. Bozenko's job was to understand the thinking of black market chemists. He analyzed what they produced and worked out how they did it. In time, Bozenko began traveling abroad to clandestine labs after they had been seized. His first foreign assignment was a lab that had made the stimulant MDMA in Jakarta, Indonesia. He saw the world through the protective goggles of a hazmat suit, sifting through the remains of illegal labs in three dozen countries. Meth was the drug that Bozenko analyzed most in the early years of his job. Large quantities of it were coming up out of Mexico, where traffickers had industrialized production and into the American Southwest. All the stuff Bezenko analyzed was made from ephedrine, a natural substance commonly found in decongestants derived from the ephedra plant, which was used for millennia as a stimulant and an anti-asthmatic. A Japanese researcher had first altered the ephedrine molecule to synthesize crystal methamphetamine in 1919. During World War II, it was marketed in Japan as Hiropon, a word that combines the Japanese term for fatigue and fly away. Hereupon was given to Japanese soldiers to increase alertness. This came as news to me. I knew the Nazis had been big on methamphetamine and, and probably made Hitler an addict in his last days. But apparently it all started in Japan. Notes the piece. In the early 80s, the ephedrine method for making meth was rediscovered by the American criminal world. Of course, in the meantime, this explains why you have to sign for your Sudafed at your local pharmacy, as there was a, a backlash against the easy use of pseudoephedrine and ephedrine. 
course, ephedrine is a very distinct molecule, and it is possible to control methamphetamine made from ephedrine by controlling the ephedrine. But notes the piece, there was another way to make methamphetamine. Before the ephedrine method had been rediscovered, this other method had been used by the Hells Angels and other biker gangs, which had dominated the much smaller meth trade in the 1980s. Its essential chemical was a clear liquid called 2-phenyl-2-propanone, 2P2. Many combinations of chemicals could be used to make 2P2. Most of those were legal, cheap, and toxic. Cyanide, lye, mercury, sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, nitrostyrene. The P2P process of cooking meth was complicated and volatile. The biker's cooking method gave off a smell so rank that it could only be done in rural or desert outposts, and the market for their product was limited. Among the drawbacks of the 2P2 method is that it produces two kinds of meth. One is known as D-methamphetamine, which is the stuff that makes you high. The other is L-methamphetamine, which makes the heart race but does little to the brain. It is a waste product. Most cooks would likely want to get rid of the L-meth if they knew what it was. But separating the two is tricky, beyond the skills of most clandestine chemists. And without doing so, the resulting drug is inferior to ephedrine-based meth. It makes your heart hammer without offering as potent a high. Bozenko's sample contained mostly D-methamphetamine. Someone had moved most of the L-meth. I've taken down labs in several continents, Bosenkel told me years later. No one in the criminal world, as far as he and his colleagues knew, had ever figured out how to separate D-meth from L-meth before. Now, back in the 1980s and 90s, when the ephedrine method had taken over the market, and because the substance could be transformed into meth with ease and efficiency, all you had to do was tweak the ephedrine molecule, and doing that required little more than following a recipe. But you had to have ephedrine. The 2P2 method offered traffickers one huge advantage. The chemicals used to make it were also used in a wide array of industries, among them racing fuel, tanning, gold mining, perfume, and photography. Law enforcement couldn't restrict all those chemicals the way it had with ephedrine, not without damaging legitimate sectors of the economy. And a trained organic chemist could make 2P2 in many ways. It's impossible to say how many methods of making 2P2 a creative chemist might come up with. Bozenko counted a dozen or so at first. With this new method and full access to the world's chemical markets through Mexican shipping, traffickers could ramp up production of 2P2 meth in quantities that were, in effect, limitless. Even so, notes the piece, Bozenko couldn't have anticipated just how widely the meth epidemic would reach 15 years later or how it would come to interact with the opioid epidemic, which was then gaining force. And he couldn't know how strongly it would contribute to the related scourges that now are very much evident in America, epidemics of mental illness and homelessness. The article skips again to a fire down in Mexico of a warehouse that was manufacturing meth back in 2006. Peace describes how the Mexican meth industry had been pioneered by two brothers, Luis and Jesus Amezcua. They came to California illegally as kids and eventually ran an auto shop near San Diego. The story goes that a local meth cook dropped by their shop in about 1988 asking Jesus if he could bring in ephedrine from Mexico. Jesus at that time was smuggling Colombian cocaine. But he brought ephedrine north and with that became attuned to the market that had been opened up by Donald Spenger, who was the man who had um, largely rediscovered the ephedrine-based method of making meth. At that time, ephedrine was an unregulated chemical in Mexico. Within a few years, the Amezquas were importing tons of it. 
Notes the piece, the Amezcua's meth career lasted about a decade until cases brought against them landed them in Mexican prisons, where they remain today. But their actions marked a new way of thinking among Mexican traffickers. They were more interested in business alliances than vengeances and endless shootouts, which had characterized the previous generation of smugglers and traffickers. The Amezcuas were the first Mexican traffickers to understand the profit potential of a synthetic drug and the first to tap the global economy for chemical connections. At first, they had run labs on both sides of the border. Down in Mexico, they started learning how to make this stuff in quantity. The piece notes that Hell's Angels cooks took three days to make five pounds of meth. Mexican crews soon learned to arrive at cook sites like NASCAR pit crews with pre-measured chemicals, large vats, and seasoned workers. They produced 10 to 12 pounds per cook in 24 hours in what came to be known as super labs. Soon the biker gangs themselves were buying their meth from the Mexicans. The DEA noticed that uh, cooks and workers who'd been coming up from Mexico began to vanish. Informants told them that they were headed home. Meth lab seizures in the U.S. withered from more than 10,000 that year to 2,500 in 2008. Today, it notes, in the U.S., they are rare. And super labs are practically non-existent. In Mexico, however, it was a different story. That lab that we were talking about a moment ago in 2006 that two agents they described as Chavez and Perez had been investigating reflected the union of substantial capital and little concern for law enforcement. Notes they found on the scene suggested that the cooks down there got about 240 pounds per batch. When Joe Bozenko joined the team down in Mexico, what struck them was that they were not seeing ephedrine. This lab was set up exclusively to make 2P2 meth. About five years after that lab blew up, investigation of another super laboratory in Mexico showed that it could produce 900 metric tons of methamphetamine. Mexican authorities later reported that they the 16 workers that were arrested at that lab in Querétaro. 14 died the next six months from liver failure, presumably caused by exposure to chemicals at that lab. Diverts into the personal story of a crystal meth user named Eric Barrera. The article notes that Barrera would sometimes stay up on meth for four or five days in the early 2000s. He would make excuses for missing work, but until that point, he'd held his life together. He was a loan processor, then for an insurance company. He had an apartment, an Acura Integra, and lots of friends. But as the meth changed around 2009, so did Barrera's life. His craving for meth continued, but paranoia and delusions began to fill his days. He said strange things to people. He couldn't hold a job. No one tolerated him for long. He would describe his hallucinations to friends, and they would say, I don't care how much dope you got. You can't stay here. And apparently... This is the point of this article. He was not alone. Beginning in about 2013 and for the next several years, meth production expanded geometrically. A member of the Sinaloa drug world told the author it just escaped all limits. In a five-square-kilometer area outside of Culiacan, which is Sinaloa's capital, there were like 20 meth labs. Then it said you go out 15 kilometers, and there's more than 100. And this is where... Basic economics kicks in. They note with labs popping up everywhere, the price of a pound of meth fell to nearly $1,000 for the first time on U.S. streets by the late 1910s, a 90% drop from just a decade earlier. Traffickers' response to the tumbling prices were to increase production, hoping to make up for lower prices with higher volume. Competition among producers also drove meth purity to record highs. Suffice it to say the country's been flooded with methamphetamine in the past five years. The article notes that habits, once entrenched, are difficult to change. They refer to smoking, which is one of the most uh, 
addicting substances known to medical science. The piece notes that people stopped smoking, nevertheless, by the fact that friction was added to the activity. Smoking was made hard to do. We removed cigarettes from vending machines, banned smoking in public spaces by adding friction to smoking. We also removed cues that prompted people to smoke, bars where booze, friends, and cigarettes went together, for example. Something like the opposite of that was happening with 2PT meth. They quote Matt Sharp, director of the recovery program at Midnight Mission, an L.A. treatment center, said to the author, meth reminds me of what alcoholics go through. There's alcohol everywhere. Meth, there's an availability to it that is not the case with heroin or crack. It's everywhere. Peace also notes that opioid users and meth users were generally two different populations. But as opioids became more restricted in recent years, a lot of opioid addicts began to shift en masse to meth. Meth overdoses have risen rapidly in recent years, but are much less common than opioid ODs. You don't typically overdose and die on meth, you just sort of decay. And my consultant, I asked about this article, told me an anecdote about someone he knew who was getting treatment for his meth addiction when they ran a drug screen on him, discovered that, uh, well, it looks like you're also using quite a bit of opioids. He says, no, I'm not. And they said, yes, you are. He just didn't know it. It was apparently being mixed into the meth. Now, whether it was fentanyl or not, I, I couldn't say. I presume it probably was, since that seems to be the main culprit now coming out of China. Of course, after it comes out of China, it goes down to Mexico, where it then finds its way into the U.S. So I don't know the details of this. But to go back to the article by Sam Kinotis, he notes that over the past year and a half, I've talked with meth addicts, counselors, and cops around the country. The people I spoke to told me stories more identical to that with Eric Barrera. 2P2 meth was quickly causing steep deteriorations in mental health. The symptoms were always similar. Violent paranoia, hallucinations, isolation, massive memory loss, conspiracy theorization, jumbled speech. Methamphetamine is a neurotoxin. It damages the brain no matter how it's derived. But 2P2 meth seems to create a higher order of cerebral catastrophe. They quoted Ken Vick, director of a drug treatment center in Kansas City, who said, I don't even know that I would call it meth anymore. Now, people with no prior history of mental illness seem to be going mad. Peace notes that in Portland, Oregon, in the wake of the flood of meth, by January 2020, the city had to close down its downtown sobering station. It opened in 1985 as a place for alcoholics to sober up for six to eight hours, but was unequipped to handle people addicted to 2P2 meth. The degree of mental health deterioration, the wave of psychosis, the profound disorganization is something I've never seen before, said Rachel Soltaroff, the CEO of the Central City Concern. The article also gives some anecdotal examples of how, at least in the old days, it might take a decade or so for you to have your life come apart if you were a meth addict, whereas these days it seems to be accomplished in about a year. Now, again, I'm not, you know, a drug counselor. I'm not in the front lines witnessing all of this, but I find it easy to believe. I don't think the Sinaloa drug cartels are necessarily, you know, completely concerned about quality control. I'm sure they don't want to kill their customers, but, you know, if they make their customers go crazy faster, eh, as long as they keep buying the drug. Anyway, 
Here's how the piece closes. Once your eyes are open to the scale and human consequences of the 2P2 meth epidemic, it's hard to miss its ramifications in many areas of American public life. Perhaps the most significant is homelessness. L.A. has long been the nation's homelessness capital, but as in many cities, large and small, the problem has worsened greatly in recent years. In the L.A. area, homelessness more than doubled between 2012 and 2020. Drug counselor Mitchell told the author that the most visible homelessness, people sleeping on sidewalks or in tents that now crowd many of the city's neighborhoods, was clearly due to the new meth. There was a sea change with respect to meth being the main drug of choice beginning in about 2008. Now it's the number one drug. Remarkably, meth rarely comes up in city discussions on homelessness or in newspaper articles about it. Mitchell called it the elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it. There's a, desire not to, there's a desire not to stigmatize the homeless as drug users. Policymakers and advocates instead prefer to focus on L.A.'s cost of housing, which is very high, but hardly relevant to people rendered psychotic and unemployable by methamphetamine. The article quotes a Tali Wenick counselor in Bend, Oregon, noting the explosion of homelessness in Central Oregon, and noted that almost everybody's using You're trying to help somebody get clean, and they live in a camp where almost everyone is using. Part of the problem, too, in all of this is there's no central villain in the 2P2 meth story. There's no Purdue Pharmacy, no dominant cartel. There's no single entity to target. So the issue is often enveloped in a willful myopia. Advocates for homeless people seem reluctant to speak about the drug for fear that the downtrodden will be blamed for their troubles. They note the spread of 2P2 meth is part of a longer narrative, a shift in drug supply from plant-based drugs like marijuana, cocaine, and heroin to synthetic drugs which can be made anywhere, quickly, cheaply, and year-round. Underground chemists are continually seeking to develop more potent and addictive varieties of them. The use of mind-altering substances by humans is age-old, but we've entered a new era. So what's the solution to this? Ramp up the drug war? That hasn't worked out for the past, uh, you know, I don't know, more than a half century in America. Actually, more than a century, really. If you go back to the Pure Food and Drug Act, the turn of the 20th century, the time when marijuana all of a sudden, uh, you know, started becoming a major problem, we find that America's solution to its drug problem was to ban and try and fight it. Remember how that worked out with prohibition? Not too well. It's not working out too well with drug restriction either. So, I I don't know. I suppose if um, drug use was made more legal, or at least decriminalized more, and better products were available to people who had issues, they might profit from this. In Portugal, drugs have pretty much been made legal. Of course, small amounts of it are legal. They still try and step in now and again and, you know, bust people with large quantities of it, which, of course, doesn't exactly make total sense. But I do remember many years ago when I was in medical school reading an article about the two approaches that, that, that the U.K. and the U.S. applied to the issue of um, abusive substances, cocaine, marijuana, opiates. In the U.K., they decided that if someone had a drug problem, he'd write him a prescription for, say, heroin, and you'd fill it at your local pharmacy. In the decades since they'd adopted that policy, in the UK there were uh, there were heroin addicts numbered. I think I think at that time uh, it might have been in the thousands, but it might have been in the hundreds. It was not a huge number; probably was a couple thousand. 
And at that time, there were probably that many heroin addicts in the city of Detroit alone, because in America, we decided to restrict the substances, which, of course, instituted a fantastic profit motive for the drug dealer, who was also then interested as a marketer in making sure that, you know, there was an, uh, uh, there was an end user for what he was trying to sell. We welcome your feedback on this topic. And please, you're welcome to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I also want to note one caveat. I don't know that this article is the uh, the final word on this topic. I did speak with one renegade person I know who noted having sampled some of the Sinaloa product of a few decades ago and of more recent years and did not think there was a large difference. But I'm not talking in this case about a meth head, someone who's an addict. I was talking to someone that had brief, sporadic usage. So apples and oranges, not the same thing. I just know in the end that the, 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 great, uh, the great drug war that we're still waging in this country uh, is over. We've lost. Clearly the drugs have won. We need to run up the white flag and find some new solutions to this idiocy. All right, in the six or seven minutes we have left, I think we need to lighten, lighten the mood just, just a bit. So let's do a few miscellaneous items. Here's, this one's about as miscellaneous as it gets, I think. Saudi Arabia apparently plans to turn an abandoned offshore oil platform into an extreme park and resort. Named The Rig, the planned 1.6 million square foot park in the Arabian Sea will feature roller coasters, submarines, bungee jumping, and skydiving, as well as three hotels and 11 restaurants stretch across interconnected platforms. High rollers can arrive by helicopter or dock a super yacht marina. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund has said the park is expected to attract tourists from all around the world. Radio Parallax has been unable to confirm the rumor that Donald Trump has gotten involved with plans for a Miss Offshore Drilling Rig beauty contest. But, you know, we like to consider the possibility he'll get involved in something like that instead of what he's been involved with in the past few years. In a peripheral story to Donald Trump's activities in recent years, we have this. A California man who's on the FBI's most wanted list for allegedly attacking police and storming Congress during that January 6th Capitol riot is now seeking asylum in Belarus. Evan Newman, age 48, appeared on the Belarusian state-run TV news network in a segment titled Goodbye America, which presented him as a simple American whose shops were burned by Black Lives Matter activists. Newman has been charged with six offenses in the U.S., including two felonies for assaulting an officer and participating in a civil disorder. It's noted that his appearance plays into the propaganda efforts of Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko and his backer, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who both of whom have accused the U.S. of hypocrisy in prosecuting capital rioters while simultaneously condemning crackdowns on protesters abroad. And speaking of crackdowns and protesters, bad news coming out of Nicaragua of late. They held an election down there last week. It was described as a parody of democracy took place. Leftist President Daniel Ortega claims to have won a fourth consecutive term fairly and decisively, yet all of the country's main opposition leaders, leaders were either in prison or exile on election day, which makes that claim hard to, to stand up. Uh, many, many of those who might have been running against 
Daniel Ortega were instead locked up for taking part in a 2018 protest against him, protests that were brutally suppressed by his security forces at the cost of 300 lives. In the run-up to the Nicaraguan election, local TV networks and radio stations and news sites, all of which incidentally are controlled by Ortega's adult children, bombarded the nation with pro-government propaganda. Those same outlets claimed that Ortega's supposed victory represented 65% turnout of the vote, with him winning by a handy 75% of the vote count. Independent organizations report that turnout was, in fact, well below 20%. Now, you know, some, some leaders around the world have congratulated Ortega. Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro was one of those. Writing in El Financero in Mexico, Leonardo Korchenko said the Ortega saga is a truly tragic one for Nicaragua. He was once a symbol of hope for Latin America, a leader of the Sandinista guerrilla movement that overthrew right-wing dictator Anastasio Somoza in 1979 and laid a foundation for a democratic transition. Ortega served as president from 1985 to 1990, but since winning back the presidency in 2007 with the help of his media-savvy wife and Vice President Rosario Murillo, he's come to resemble the dictator he once deposed. Gee, do you think? Daniel Ortega once promised to bring democratic socialism to Nicaragua, but it has not turned out that way. I do have a friend who speaks excellent Spanish who found herself down in Nicaragua and acted as a translator once for a delegation from San Francisco and had a little interaction, shall we say, with Daniel Ortega. Unfortunately, I don't remember the exact details of the event. I'm going to have to give her a call and have her refresh my memory. Suffice it to say, it did not reflect well on Mr. Ortega's character. Anyway, sort of apropos of all of this, I, there was a quote in, in the week that I like. They were quoting Mort Saul, a reprint from The Hollywood Reporter. Mort once said, Liberals feel unworthy of their possessions. Conservatives feel they deserve everything they've stolen. And finally this, the new CEO of Air Canada has promised to learn French after he apparently offended French Canadians, which is easy to do, I think, in his first major public appearance. Michael Rousseau gave a 26-minute speech in English to the Chamber of Commerce in Montreal, where Air Canada is headquartered. He offered just a few token phrases in poor French. When a French-speaking reporter asked how Rousseau had managed to live 14 years in Montreal without learning French, the CEO could not understand the question, because he asked him in French. He finally shot back that it was a testament to the city of Montreal that he could get by with only English. Outraged local and federal officials, I I would be willing to bet French-speaking local and federal officials, condemned Rousseau who then said he'd he'd start taking French lessons right away. I think it's fair to say this sort of thing would not happen in America, which is not necessarily to our credit, because as I pointed out to many a person I was speaking through in foreign countries, that it is a well-known fact that people who speak three languages are referred to as trilingual, whereas people who speak two languages are, are known as bilingual. People who speak one language are known as Americans. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Next time we talk to you, we're going to discuss 
the cover story of New Scientist magazine, which refers to Clean Energy's Dirty Secret, the ugly scramble for green resources. We'll see you then. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say that you can